I want to get into the text this morning by um, sharing with you one of the most difficult moments of my life. And um, I want to just let you know it's nothing that really was life-threatening. Because I, I know many people have real difficult moments in their life. Um, I was a, um, a youth pastor for seven years. And uh, every year I would take kids up to camp, students up to, up to camp up in Wisconsin. And I was in, you know, I was a, you thought I, they were crazy to put me in charge of a campus when I was like 27 years old. Uh, someone put me in charge of kids when I was 22. And uh, I remember one year, we, we went up to this camp. It was right on the border of the Wisconsin and the Mississippi Rivers, up in, up in Wisconsin. And uh, being, you know, the person in charge, I delegated a bunch of things to people, things that I really didn't want to do, you know, things that were fun things like camping out in the woods with your, your small group. You, you and a couple of leaders get to do that by yourself. I'll sleep in the bed. You know what I mean? Like that type of stuff. One of the things I delegated was the canoe trip. You ask me why. It's because, well, there's no motor, Okay. I boat with motors, lots of horsepower, please. And it was the last year that I was running this camp, and I had never been on the canoe trip, and, and, and um, it seemed like the last moment I could possibly go do this thing. And so I decided this year to hike with our um, last trip of the week down to the river uh, to do what was supposed to be a one-mile drop. It was launch out at a canoe launch where there's a boat launch, and then you just put it in. And literally, we picked this route because... Um, it was foolproof. You just push out a canoe, and the current of the Mississippi uh, just drifts them down. And then what our game was on the, on the beach side, where it was a mile down the, down, the, down the river on the beach, we just had to catch them. You know what I mean? Like, that was my biggest concern, was, like, making sure they didn't go too far. So we just had a line of people out there catching canoes, always bringing them back. And so I finally, you know, we navigated down on this trip, and I had uh, uh, dozens of kids with me, and we had about 20 canoes we were going to be pushing out this day. And I... Um, didn't really think anything of it because they just were telling me what to do. And so I was just loading up canoes and shoving them out, loading up canoes and shoving them out. And the farther you could shove them, the better it was. And about 12 to 13 canoes into this, I look up and I realize my, my compass was off, like my internal compass. You know that thing with like some of you have this, some of you don't have this. But that thing that tells you like what's happening is what's supposed to be happening. Because I looked out and in my mind, south was that way where the river was supposed to be running, but all of the canoes were going that way, where the river was running. Come to find out, after we launched every canoe but the one that I was supposed to get in, that the Mississippi River was at historic flood levels this year. So much so that it literally reversed the course of the river. The mighty Mississippi, they call it. Reverse the course of the river. To make matters worse, you know, sometimes as a youth pastor, you put, like, the strong kids out there when things are tough. I didn't have, like, you know, high school seniors with me. I didn't have eighth grade boys. I had fifth graders. I know. If you're a fifth grader, I'm sorry. That, um, but you paddle like you're using a cooked noodle, okay? Like, that's how that goes. And so realizing we were kind of up against it, I, I, I got into, like, leader, leader mode, you know, like, everybody, it's going to be fine, we're going to go this way, paddle really hard, you can do it, you can do it. Never having been on this trip before, I get out there and I immediately start praying. God, help me not have to make any phone calls. Like, God, help us to be able, be able to just make it to the beach. And, and it took us an hour just to clear the little landing area where the boat launch was. And, and we got into this channel that was then supposed to just kind of carry us right to, 
right to the beach. And it's the moment that I turned the corner, and being the last person in the canoe trip, I turned the corner and I looked in front of me at what I can only describe as um, carnage and wreckage. I ceased being a youth pastor, and I'm pretty sure I turned into like a military commander of the Navy. And we were taking fire, man. We had a boat capsized over here. We had adult leaders crying in their canoes. We had one group that totally abandoned trying to try it all. They paddled their canoe to the rocks, like jagged rocks that were holding up a train. And they were like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. For a mile, they decided to walk back their canoe. In my canoe, I had a kid named Desmond. Desmond was in the front. He had never really been outside. He was kind of a city kid. And Desmond um, was trying like mad to figure out what the joy was in this activity. <laughs> I don't remember the kid that was in the middle of our canoe. We had you know, that extra kid that didn't really want to paddle. And I remember just asking the Lord to forgive me for the things I was thinking about this kid for not helping. <laughs> Desmond, at one point, in the midst of this all, you know, we're, we're an hour into it, you know, one paddle forward, two trees backwards is how it was going for us. And Desmond finally realized that he could kind of steer us. And that was terrible because Desmond pushed us to the side and there was this little island right in the middle of the river and he pushed us up ashore. And I kept saying, Desmond, what are you doing? Desmond, what are you doing? And Desmond got out without saying a word, got out of the canoe, took off his life vest, put it down on the ground, got in the fetal position, and said, Dan, just do it. Just leave me here to die. <laughs> I could bore you with the rest of this incredible story. I thought we would never get back. And here was the problem. The problem was that the beach was around a corner. A corner, I didn't know where it was, and I didn't know if it was there. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you know where you think you're supposed to be going? You know what's supposed to be right. You know what, like, the promise of the thing is, but you can't see it. And so you have to tell other people, like, keep going, keep going. It's out there. It's out there. You're going to see it soon. You're going to see it. Just keep going. This was me the entire three hours of this one-mile canoe trip. Keep going. You'll see it soon. Just keep going. I shouted that so many times. I started to wonder if it was even true. There's a man in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 that comes after the birth of Jesus who has this very similar type of experience, this, this, this moment where he believes something's coming. It's right around the corner. He just doesn't see it yet. And, and we, I want to consider with you today, what does the gift of Jesus do for us who are in this moment where maybe we don't see exactly around the, the, the turn of the corner for the destination by which we in faith are headed? Um, but this one man actually represents all of us, and I want to dig in with you. His name is Simeon. Simeon is an often overlooked character in the Christmas story. In you, I've been traveling, dropping off gifts at some of your homes, and, and um, tr you know, I always try and take notice of people's nativity scenes because I'm convinced nobody buys a nativity scene. They're handed down to you or they're given to you or you stole it. And I've yet to find Simeon in anyone's nativity scenes. Simeon meets Jesus 40 days after he's born. But all of you have wise men with gifts who come two years later. I would just love it if someone would carve out little old Simeon with his crooked little stick. And, and that would just be amazing. We, we forget about Simeon. But Simeon has an incredible part to play in the way that we understand and comprehend the Christmas story. What makes Simeon so compelling is that he was a part of a group of Jews who were waiting for the consolation 
of Israel. This is actually how they define themselves. It was like their own version of a three-word hashtag back then, the consolation of Israel. That was the coming day when the Messiah of God was going to release the Jews from the political oppression, from their poverty, from their uh, strain on life, and there was going to be peace on earth that came from God. The consolation of Israel is what they were looking for, and there's a whole remnant of Jewish people who were, I mean, can you believe they were, they were foolish enough to think that God was serious about the promises that he said. They, they took him seriously at his word. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because don't you and I do that too. We believe what God said is going to come to pass. And so these people who are waiting for the consolation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, they would stay in the temple complex. They would look for this coming baby that was to be born, and they would wait. And any time there was a child that would come in, they'd, they'd look. And I don't know what they were looking for, but they'd do this thing where it was like, ah, nah, ah, nah. Simeon, 40 days after Jesus was born, is in the temple complex waiting on the Lord. 40 days is according to the law of Moses that, that the baby would be dedicated to God. That the firstborn son would have to be redeemed back from God. Is, if, if that's not strange enough for our theological minds to think about the redeemer of the world being redeemed back by his parents so that he could then go purchase our redemption. 40 days, though, this is what it required them to go to the, to the temple. Most families would bring a lamb. And offer the lamb as a sacrifice to the Lord. But Joseph and Mary were told brought two birds because they were poor. My grandfather sentimentally told me once, you know, they didn't have a lamb because they were holding the lamb in their arms. Which, yeah, I know, right? That's kind of cute, kind of nice, and very true. Um, they offered up two birds for this son's purification. In verse 26, we find this incredible statement, even more incredible than Simeon just being <clears throat> aware of the coming Messiah and waiting for the coming Messiah and watching for the coming Messiah. Look at what verse 26 tells us. This is incredible about Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Which means there was this moment for Simeon, just like there was in Luke 1, this moment for Zechariah, just like in Luke 1, there was this moment for Mary, just like in Luke 2, there's this moment for the shepherds, that the word of God came to them and said, the Lord's Christ is coming, the Lord's Christ is coming. The Holy Spirit was the one who revealed this to Simeon. We want to know many ways, how did the Holy Spirit reveal this to Simeon, and can the Holy Spirit tell me such interesting good news as well, and I want to just, just help you with that for a second because the word here that is used for reveal is a little different than the word that would be used in, in the coming verses. Um, this is a divine utterance of a promise given by the Spirit that is rarely used outside of these contexts right here. In fact, when we think about revelation and how God speaks to us, more often than not, the New Testament talks about it in the sense of apocalyptus or this apocalyptic, this unveiling, this revealing. And, and it does so in the sense of God's Spirit writing God's word. But Simeon had a word from the Spirit apart from the scriptures. And this is an incredibly special thing for him and him alone. Mary was told that she was the God-bearer by an angel. Somehow the Holy Spirit directly told Simeon, you'll see the Messiah in your lifetime. Keep watching, keep waiting. It's just around the corner. And since there's this emphasis on death in Simeon's account, most of church history has tried to tell us that Simeon was incredibly old. Church tradition tells us that he was 117 years old 
And whenever we hear about church tradition, we often have to compare it to the biblical text. I just don't see anything in here that requires Simeon to be that old. But what happens in the story makes it more comfortable for me to think of him as an incredibly old man. You'll see why. Let's look at it together, verse 27. He came in the spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now now you see it? Do you see it? Incredibly old man standing at the gate of the temple, newborn mom. He snatches the baby out of her hands. Okay, y'all, there's a reason we have security in this church. Right? Some of you are about to have birth and you're going to stay away from here for six months because you're afraid of people touching and prodding and poking and breathing on your kid. And yet here is old Simeon standing, watching, waiting, sees Jesus and he snatches the baby up in his arms. And look at what he says about this child. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is a song that Simeon is singing over this child. You know, when, when Mary heard her revelation that she was going to be the God-bearer, she sang a song in Luke chapter 1. Here, Simeon sings this. He says, I have seen, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle that word, seen. I have seen your salvation in the presence of all people, a revelation to the Gentile, light and glory for Israel. If you've read the Bible at all, this type of stuff sounds incredibly biblical. It sounds like it belongs in the Bible. It's just like what we're used to. It kind of sounds like a biblical psalm, a biblical hymn. Maybe you're not entirely sure what it all means, but it all sounds like it belongs in the Bible. But this is incredibly radical. For one thing, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of what? Israel. And in seeing the baby Jesus, he turns and he says, I see the salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people who will be a light for revelation to who? To the Gentiles, which if you're not a church person, that just means to everybody who's not Jewish. That this baby has some sort of worldwide influence that he'll bring about to him. Here's a man waiting for a particular redemption of a particular people and he sees the redemption of that people and he says, wow, this is way bigger than I even thought. If I could summarize Simeon in one sentence, here's the sentence I would put over it. And here's the sentence I want you to think about if, if, if it's true about you and your relationship to the Lord too. If I could say Simeon's whole life in one sentence, it's this. It's the phrase, I see what you're saying. We use that phrase uh, every once in a while whenever we're talking to somebody and we're trying to like, you know, come to an understanding with them. And, and sometimes parents and kids, they don't see what each other is saying right? There's this gap, there's this distance, you're not entirely sure how this plays out. But when you start to understand, you say this phrase, oh, I see what you're saying. It's almost always accompanied by that, like, oh, oh, I see. I see. In fact, can you all just say that with me? I see what you're saying. No, I want you to say the phrase. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah? Yeah. Let's do it together. I see what you're saying. That one phrase encapsulates, in my opinion, the entirety of Christianity. 
as we think about God and, and the words that he's given to us and the promises that he's given to us, we, we said it here when, when the Sanchez family, thank you for lighting the, the candle for us, they, they even said we don't have a blind faith. The word of God contains promises that are meant to be seen. There is this experiential nature to the coming of Christ that is supposed to be an enlightenment to us. It's, it's, it's to be awakening in our eyes and in our hearts the reality of this God who has made promises and kept good on his promises. As Simeon sees the baby Jesus and he understands in this moment the depths and the, understand, and the, 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 the whole breadth of how this child would change humanity, he clicks for him and he goes, God, I, I see what you're saying. Your word, according to your word, you have prepared your salvation. According to your word, you've told me that I will not die until I see your Messiah. Now I see the thing that you've promised to me. I see. I see. Which means what was faith before has just become sight because of Jesus. Oftentimes in our life, don't we want our sight to become faith? But the way that God does it is he takes our faith and then he makes it sight. And this is the gift of Jesus. Jesus is the gift that moves us, friends, from faith to sight. To be able to see the things that God has promised for us. Most... Um, Theologians are quick to note that verse 29 is a reference back to verse 26, that, that the word that, that Simeon is referring to is the promise from the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. But, but Simeon's arc reaches all the way back through the Old Testament, all the way back through the prophets, all the way back through the, the kings. Simeon reminds us of the fact that he's seen the coming of God's salvation that was promised not just by the prophets, but was promised by the prophets. It wasn't just promised to the kings, but was promised to the kings. But, but was promised all the way back in that garden. Simeon, in one sense, when he says, you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation according to your word. He, he's pointing us all the way back to the first promise that God made in that garden. The promise, let me remind you of it, is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It was made to a serpent. I... Um, I hate snakes, don't you? Some of you keep them as pets, and we'll pray over you later. To the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between your offspring and her, her offspring, Eve's. And you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Salvation. Consolation of Israel. The promise of God. Simeon, in this moment, I can't help but think, started to put together the pieces of what we call the first good news back in Genesis chapter 3. A little bit later, um, what God says uh, to Adam is, is simply this. He says, um, Adam, you're going to become dust because from dust you came and to dust you shall return. See, all of this put back together in Simeon's one statement at the beginning of his phrase. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Why? Because I've seen the one who's going to crush the enemy. 
And I know that my place in this world is from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And there's something about that return to earth. There's something about this baby who's come to change the world that makes my departing no longer fearful, but it makes it peaceful. There's something about this baby that's changed the entire cosmos for Simeon where by if he died, it would be gain as opposed to living, which would be loss. There's something about this baby who's, he believed in the faith that was going to keep him coming. And, and as long as he had faith in this baby and had yet to see him, he knew that he was going to live. But the moment that he saw the baby, his faith turned to sight and his sight made him realize this baby is greater than anything else. So that now when I depart, it's going to be peaceful because he's got me not just now or not just then, but forever and ever and ever. Simeon is putting together for us just the hope that we have, that this baby has come, and when you see him, it changes everything, especially your eternity. To depart in peace, it literally means, I love this, it literally means to to untie a ship from the dock and let it out into calm waters. Anything different than the canoe trip that I sent my kids out on. That was departing in anxiety, that was departing in foolishness, To depart in peace, it it means to be um, released from the burden of a yoke, to have to do manual labor. It means means to be able to finally rest. Simeon had confidence in death because he had met a Savior in life. Why? Verse 30 says this, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His faith had become sight. And what was his faith in? In one sense, his faith was in the promise that the Holy Spirit had made to him that you're going to see the Messiah. But I I have to believe that once he saw the baby, his faith was in Christ, the same way all of us have faith in Christ. This isn't something that just happens to Simeon. This baby is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, for all the world outside of God's chosen people, for glory to Israel, which... This week I felt convicted of the fact that many times we as a church tend to think poorly of our Jewish friends when God still has great love and care and concern that they would see the same salvation that's been prepared for all people. If all this happened and this was it, we, we would just be able to go along with our ways and be able to say, well, hey, Merry Christmas. Someone saw Jesus, understood the significance, told us the significance, held the baby, blessed him, gave him back to the mom, and we could all go on our way and give each other gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning and call it good. But Simeon's story takes a little bit of a dark turn. And I want to read this to you. Look at, look at verse 34 with me. He hands the baby back to Mary. He utters these words. He says, and Simeon blessed them, said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We're used to Jesus coming, peace on earth, good mercy, my God and sinners reconciled. But we're not used to, behold, the child is going to be appointed for the fall and rising of many. It would take 33 years for Mary to understand the pain of the sword piercing through her own soul. She would understand this at the foot of the cross 
on which the governors and the temple leaders had condemned her son to die. She would watch as blood and water ran down his side. And I believe, knowing how Luke assembled the gospel account and talked to eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, I believe Mary at the cross thought back to these words from old Simeon the day that he blessed God. There's a funny phrase in this here sentence that is a little bit different than the way you and I would normally talk about life. To our ears, these words are a little bit backwards. This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. To, to our ears, we're used to thinking about people who are rising and then falling. I don't really read great you know, biographies of people who had messed up early lives and then made it out. I typically read stories of people who hit it big and then messed up. Like the rise and fall of Rome. The rise and fall of the Third Reich. The rise and fall of Circuit City. <laughs> right? I mean, we're all about the rise and then the fall. Simeon doesn't seem to think about it that way. He says, no, this baby's going to cause falling and then rising. Why? Why, why would he say it that way? What significance is there in this phrase? Well, it's because... This phrase separates Christianity from every other religion that's out there. Every other religion that's out there is all about you rising, you rising, you getting up, you coming up, you, you, you ascending, you going through the ranks. Christianity is the only religion that begins with falling. Christianity is the only religion that begins or the understanding of the worldview that begins with a descent. And I, of course, I'm talking about this theologically from the sense that you and I are sinful people. The beginning of our story, Genesis chapter 3, is a fall. It's a fall from grace. It's a fall from glory. It's a fall from the way that God created our lives to be in the first place. If you can't understand the fact that you and I are not in the place that we're supposed to be, but we've actually fallen, there's never going to be a hope for you to then rise. Said even further... When Simeon says this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many, I believe he's also talking about the way that Jesus would be perceived in his life and his death. That here was this rabbi who was ascending to great power and great prestige only to fall at the hands of the Romans. But brothers and sisters, I know it ain't Easter yet, but what's that, what's that thing we celebrate on Easter? Right, The fact that he didn't stay dead. In the immortal words of Taylor Swift, what's dead didn't stay dead. Maybe you haven't heard the new songs yet. That's fine. That, that was for me. <laughs> he didn't stay dead, but he, he, what's the word we use? He rose. He rose again. This child would be appointed for the fall and the rising of many. A, a stumbling stone of offense almost is what he seems to say. We can point to many places in the New Testament where Jesus is that stone that many people trip over on their way to understanding God. They want to be good people. They want to have the blessings of God, but they don't want to confront Jesus, and they trip over Jesus, and yet this is exactly the way it was supposed to be, friends. Why? Because all of Christianity, all of our lives is, is ultimately about this baby that grew up to be, I mean, he was always the Savior, but grew in knowledge and stature, sacrificed his life, died on the cross, and rose back from the dead. Simeon is in microcosm what you and I are in our entire lives. People who 
start our lives maybe ignorant of the promises of God, ignorant of, of who God is and what he's doing, ignorant of, of even who I am and how desperate I am in need of a Savior. When Simeon hears the promise of God, he's all of a sudden awakened to this desire to see the Savior. He knows the, the coming Messiah. He knows something is happening, and then he sees it with his own eyes. He has this encounter with, with, with the living Savior. Though it comes in a way that maybe most people wouldn't have thought, he comes and he saw him and he beheld him, and his, his, his faith turned to sight. And it changed everything for him such that he could say, I'll depart in peace knowing God that we're good. You and I start this life unaware of the promises of God, but through experience, we realize that we need help, don't you? We realize that we aren't necessarily as holy or as good as we think we ought to be. And there's something that happens the moment that you're confronted with the fact that there was the God, man, Jesus came from heaven to earth because of that. Because he knew that your soul needed consolation. Your soul needed to be put back together. Your soul needed to be freed from what was trapping you. And you experienced the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And your faith became sight all the more as you walked with him. I mean, isn't that the way Christianity goes? Anybody in here want to give testimony to the fact that they've seen the promises of God fulfilled in their life the more they've walked with Jesus? Anyone? Dan, that's true of you, right? I mean, Eric, I know you know that. Rob, I think about you, bro, and the things that God has shown you. Is he not a provider? Has God not provided for you when you've needed it every step of the way? And I could go around the room and just, just say this to every single one of us. Because we have a God who shows up in our lives because his son has done the hardest thing, which is conquering us from our death and our trapment to sin and giving us faith in him. And this faith bears itself out, not blindly throughout life, wishing and hoping that just around the bend we're going to get to the beach. But this faith bears itself out in our lives when at every single juncture we turn and we say, God, that's you. God, my eyes have seen your salvation. Every time, I was talking to a guy right before this uh, service, and he hasn't seen his dad in a very long time. I don't want to say too much because he didn't give me permission to say this, so I'll be very vague. But, but he just has had a very strained relationship with his dad. Over the past year, We've been talking and after the service telling me like, hey, I feel this thing inside of me that says I should reach out to my dad. And the way he has to do it is very complicated because of some situations. So they started to put the relationship back together. Just today he told me, he goes, you know, I, I finally felt compelled to send him a picture of my family. Brothers and sisters, only God does that. Only God brings people back together. And only those who can understand this baby is appointed for the fall and then the rise of many. Only those who understand that this baby is the consolation of Israel. Only those who understand that this baby is God's Messiah. And by trust and faith in him, we can have peace. Only those who understand that can actually look at God and say, I see what you're saying. Can walk through life with this posture of saying, God, you've made promises to me and I finally see what these promises are. And I see it. I see what you're saying. My hope for you this Christmas, I think Simeon's hope for us in our lifetimes, is that we would see anew our God. That we would go through life with eyes wide open, to borrow a really great title from a really great pastor's book. 
to have eyes wide open, to be able to see what it is that God is doing in our lives. My fear is that most of us are more like Thomas. You, you remember Thomas. Thomas is the guy at the end of the Gospels who, who hears that Jesus is resurrected, that he has risen. And he says, and I think the quote is, um, unless I see the nail scars in his hands and touch his side, I will not believe, exclamation point. And so what does Jesus do for a heart like that? He shows up. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus says something incredible at the end of the Gospels. John 20, 29 says this. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Have you believed just because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe or have not seen and yet still believe. See, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he had the privilege of actually seeing and beholding the physical body of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I don't have that privilege. I've never seen Jesus' body. Dennis, have you? I, I don't think you. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> and yet I'm reminded at Christmas that there's another coming that we await. There's another faith to sight moment that's coming. I can't wait for that day. It was penned poetically in that hymn, it is well with my soul. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Until then, we live our lives trying to put together the pieces of what God has promised us. But what has he promised you? That he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That he knows the plans he has for you. That he loves you tremendously to the point that he gave his only son for you. And that by faith in him, you can go from falling to resonate.